In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful, and kindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your Spirit, and they shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. O God, who by the light of the Holy Spirit did instruct the hearts of the faithful, grant that by the same Holy Spirit we may be truly wise, and ever enjoy his consolations through Christ our Lord. Amen. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to St. John. As John stood with two of his disciples, Jesus passed, and John stared hard at him and said, Look, there is the Lamb of God. Hearing this, the two disciples followed Jesus. Jesus turned around, saw them following, and said, What do you want? They answered, Rabbi, which means teacher, where do you live? Come and see, he replied. So they went and saw where he lived, and stayed with him the rest of the day. It was about the tenth hour. One of these two who became followers of Jesus after hearing what John had said was Andrew, the brother of Simon Peter. Early next morning, Andrew met his brother and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means the Christ. And he took Simon to Jesus. Jesus looked hard at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You are to be called Kephas, meaning rock. This is right at the beginning of the Gospel of St. John, and we know all about the beginning because we had it a couple of weeks ago, literally in the beginning, we had the prologue. And this is just in within the first chapter, very close to the prologue, but between, them we, between that we had the introduction of John the Baptist as the witness who declared that the one who was coming after him was greater than he was. And so this is what follows Jesus passed. As John stood with two of his disciples, Jesus passed. And John stared hard at him and said, Look, there is the Lamb of God. So that's the beginning. That's where Jesus is introduced after John has been introduced. Has Jesus passed? Right, so we're in John 1. We're at Bethany on the far side of the Jordan, where John baptizes. And we are in the first week of the public ministry of Jesus. Now, in the Gospel of St. John, all the events are counted into days in that first chapter and the second chapter, the next day, the next day, the next day. So it sort of echoes the first beginning, which is the beginning we hear about at creation in Genesis, a beginning which is in seven days. This is the beginning of the new creation in in Christ. Everything is made new, everything is recreated, everything is reordered. And everything is reordered towards him, as we will see. But precisely in that first sentence, Jesus passed, John stares hard, points to him, and the two disciples follow. The whole movement is about following Jesus. So John literally gives witness to Jesus, which is exactly what he was supposed to be doing. 
And we see that those disciples that follow Jesus after having followed John, because John is speaking to his own disciples, two of his disciples, and literally loses them to Jesus. A disciple is one who follows. A disciple is one who has a master and follows the master, who learns. So uh, um, a student, as it were, but much more than a student insofar as the learning is not just didactic, but it's a learning of the whole person for life. A disciple is one who follows his master in every way and spends his life at the feet of his master. So John loses his disciples to Jesus because literally on speaking, this is the lamp of God, the two disciples follow Jesus. So now they become followers of Jesus and they are named, uh, well, one is named Andrew the brother of Simon Peter, and then Simon, we have the, the following of Simon through Andrew after that. The other is not named, but tradition has it that it is John the Evangelist. So in this passage, we have both Johns. John the Baptist, who's the main instigator of everything that will happen and then will fade into the background completely immediately after the first sentence, after having spoken those words, he fades into the background. He will be mentioned again in the Gospel of St. John in chapter 3, and then that will be that for John the Baptist. And his death will not really be recounted in the Gospel of St. John as it is in the other synoptic Gospels. So we have John the Baptist, and then we have John, supposedly John the Evangelist, who would be the one unnamed disciple together with Andrew. So those disciples are named, which is important because we have the sense that their persons, their vocation, their, their discipleship is personal, it's their choice, and, but they are also together. There are two of them. There is a commonality, and we will come back to that. Things happen to people together, and that's actually very good. Individualism is not really part of Christianity. Emphasis on the person, yes, but also that can't be imagined or actually brought about without an emphasis on the community as well. And so this is it. This is the beginning of this work of recreation in the seven days. Now, to have an overall understanding of this passage, a, a theme which uh, is very marked in this passage, I don't pretend to explain everything there is about this passage at all, and in fact, I will explain probably very little about it. But the, the point I want to make tonight is that there's really a, a tremendous theme in this passage, and it's one of vocation, the call. And each one of the person named, John the Baptist, Jesus, the disciples, Simon Peter, receives or fulfills his vocation in that passage. It's like a, an extraordinary condensed overview of what it is to have a vocation and to fulfill it, and each to his own vocation as well. No one is trying to live anybody else's life and, and to fulfill anybody else's call but their own, which is absolutely wonderful. And is the sense of ordering, the sense of order. If everyone does what they're supposed to be doing in the plan of God, everything works out. And this is the beauty of that passage, if you want, right at the beginning, Jesus passes and everything falls into order. John the Baptist fulfills his vocation. And his vocation, we heard it back two weeks ago 
when we listen to the prologue, uh, the beginning of the gospel, in John 1, 6 to 8, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came for testimony to bear witness to the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness to the light. That's John's vocation, John the Baptist. And in one sentence here, he has completely fulfilled it. Before that sentence, he was talking about Jesus as someone who could not be seen yet. Someone is in the midst of you. So we have in John 1, 34, he has already fulfilled that by seeing Jesus coming towards it and saying, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And he's already pointed and he's giving witness. I saw the Spirit descend as a dove from heaven. There's no mention of the baptism of Jesus as such in the Gospel of St. John, but what we have is the mention of John giving witness. He consistently gives witness. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And this Gospel that we have is the next day. The next day, John stood with two of his disciples, Jesus passed. And John repeats the same witness. And after that, this is it. He has given his witness, which is very interesting because... It tells us something about the vocation of John as a witness, that what he, the message he carries, and in fact he repeats it over and over because he's already said, a man comes before me, this is one of whom I said. So he keeps saying the same thing, a man comes after me who ranks before me for he was before me. We heard that before, John said it before, John keeps saying the same thing until finally it happens and then he withdraws. But what he has to say is worth repeating. And he repeats it, if you want, until he sees the fruit of it, which is precisely his disciples stopping, ceasing to follow him in order to follow Jesus. And that's where he sees, right, I've borne witness now. I've fulfilled my witness. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, this is very important because in, our, in the gospel, look, there is the Lamb of God. What is the witness that John gives? It's the weirdest witness you can imagine. Now, if you were to uh, try to convince anyone that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the one everybody's waiting for, that Jesus is the Lord, that Jesus is God, that Jesus is the Savior, maybe you would be using those words. But the Lamb... Jesus is the Lamb of God. Now, of course, to us, it means a huge amount because we've heard the Lamb of God. We've heard that sentence, the Lamb of God, every day or every time we go to Mass, behold the Lamb of God, we know that Jesus is the Lamb of God. We've heard this before. It's part of our culture. We're familiar with it. But imagine the people standing there by the Jordan at Bethany hearing John say, behold the Lamb of God. How strange is that? It would require an, 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 quite an amount of thinking through to, for them to say, well, you know, that means something and it means something important. But the Lamb of God, who wants to convince anyone just by saying this and, and no explanation? At least the day before, John says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But here is, behold the Lamb, look, there is the Lamb of God. And that's enough, actually, for the disciples to follow Jesus. 
But what an extraordinary way to call Jesus. What a very strange way to call Jesus. And why does it have such an effect on the two disciples? Because the lamb in the Jewish context, in the context of the Old Testament, is usually significant, but it never is quite the lamb of God. Usually the lamb is the lamb of sacrifice that the people offer to God, but it's never the lamb that God offers for the people. The lamb is, is the gift, the sacrifice that the people present to God, not really the sacrifice that's the lamb of God never existed before. It's the lamb of sacrifice, yes, but not the lamb of God. So here is the lamb that God, as it were, will sacrifice or the lamb that is going to be sacrificed for us. So there is a whole lot of understanding that needs to be done. And the only way to understand this is to look back at the whole of the Old Testament because that lamb keeps reappearing in bits and pieces of the Old Testament. And in, in figuring out what that means in that context, we figure out the vocation of Jesus himself. This is the vocation of Jesus. Jesus himself has a vocation. He's the saint, he's called, he's the God made flesh, he's the word made flesh, he's God the Son, who embraces the vocation that he receives to be sent by the Father and to offer himself to the Father for us as the Lamb of God. This summarizes his vocation. So let's look a little bit at that Lamb and what, where we find him a little bit. First of all, the Lamb is the one that God was, is providing instead of Isaac. So in Genesis 22, we have the sacrifice of Isaac. Isaac uh, is the son of the promise, the son that God had promised and was the fulfillment of the word of God, completely impossible through human expectation because Abraham and Sarah couldn't have any children and they were beyond the age of childbearing. Sarah was. And so Isaac is a miracle child, a gift from God. And now God is asking Abraham to sacrifice the very gift that he has given him. So Abraham is ready. And then we have this extraordinary dialogue between Isaac and Abraham. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. And of course, we know the story that as Abraham was ready to sacrifice Isaac, the angel of the Lord prevented him, hold his hand, which manifested God's will that, no, you shouldn't sacrifice your son. And they found a, a ram caught in the bushes. So Abraham sacrificed a ram instead. But was that the lamb? In fact, this pointed to a greater promise, the promise of God's own son, not the son of Abraham, but the son of God, who would be sacrificed as the lamb of God, the, the lamb that God will provide. And if you want, the whole of the history of Israel can be understood as from that moment of an expectation of the lamb of God 
the lamb that God himself will provide. We have the mention of the lamb, of course, in Exodus, the lamb whose blood was uh, painted on the lintel of the doorposts of the Israel in Egypt so that their household would be spared. Again, it's a lamb sacrificed for the people. We have in Isaiah, Isaiah 53, 7, uh, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is that before its shearers is dumb. So he opened up his mouth. This is part of Isaiah 53, the song of the suffering servant, which depicts exactly how we understand the sacrifice of the cross, that it is this self-offering of the innocent one, the servant of the Lord, who is likened to a lamb offered in sacrifice for the people because, in fact, he bears the sin of the people. Yet it was the will of the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief when he makes himself an offering for sin. Uh, So he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. That's the lamb of sacrifice, the lamb of offering. In a context where in Israel the law was that every day two lambs should be offered in the temple every single day, one in the morning and one in the evening. And of course, the prophets tell us, especially Jeremiah, that these offerings, these sacrifices are incapable of truly reconciling us with God, of truly pleasing God. They are animals. What does God want from the blood of animals? What he wants is our return to him, our our conversion But how is that possible? Our change of heart, our turning away from our evil ways, our contrition, that's what the Lord desires. How is that going to come about? How are we to be reconciled with God through the Lamb of God? Not the Lamb of humanity, the Lamb's animals. They are not, they are merely a sign of what God is planning. So we see that in those words, the Lamb of God, we have the whole of the vocation of Jesus described to us, and in fact, the whole of the Paschal mystery. And this is how John sees Jesus when he comes, the Lamb of God. He didn't say, you know, the Word of God, which is how John, the evangelist, introduces him in the Gospel. He didn't say the light of the world, which is another way in which John, he didn't say the bread of life, he said the Lamb of God, which really encapsulates, as well as those other terms, but the Lamb of God is really the vocation of Jesus, who comes to offer his life for us, who comes to give his life for us. We find the vocation of the disciples and apostles described in this passage in a fantastic way. Uh, They immediately follow as disciple, and then Andrew immediately sort of becomes an apostle by going and, and telling the good news, as it were, to his brother Simon and bringing him to Jesus. So we have a, a really beautiful understanding of vocation of being a disciple of Jesus, which is everyone's vocation, and I'll come back to this. And then we have the vocation of Peter, Simon the Rock. Um, he took Simon to Jesus. Jesus looked hard at him and said, you are Simon, son of John, you are to be called Kephas, meaning rock. So here already, 
another name, like Vamp of God, another name to describe another vocation. And we have it already there in, in sort of a little seed of understanding of, of the church and of particular vocations in the church, especially with Peter, the first leader of the church. So all these vocations, John the Baptist, Jesus, the disciples who become apostles, and especially Simon Peter, are all in those few lines. And first of all, before we move on to, to think a bit more deeply about our own, what it means for our own vocation, what we can do is revisit that text, really using the allegorical sense, looking at that text really as a summary of God's activity into the world, redeeming activity, not, not so much creation, but redemption. It's really a summary of redemption in the most astonishing way in those few lines. How does that work? Because it's a summary of Christ's vocation and Christ is our redeemer. So I've put here a picture of the sacrifice of Isaac, where Isaac is depicted as Jesus on the cross. It is the sacrifice of the Lamb of God. Now, do you remember in the garden, back in Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve sinned, they hid from God, which is a wonderful, fantastic image of what sin does. It separates us from God. We think God is our enemy and we hide from him. If you want the separation from God, it's not something that God instigates so much as ourselves when we turn away from him. And God, what does God do? He's uh, portrayed as seeking them. He went into the garden and, and was looking for them and said, Adam, where are you? So you have God seeking lost humanity. Now this Adam, where are you? This, this search of God for humanity, which is you know summarized in those three words, is what's happening throughout the whole history of salvation. God comes looking for us. God comes looking for each one of us, but God comes looking for humanity as a whole. How does he come looking for us in Jesus? Jesus passed by. He's looking for us. But there's this wonderful dialogue and back and forth between God's initiative of grace and human freedom, which we will see in the text. So God seeks us. How does he go about this? Well, first of all, Jesus, the son of God, doesn't become incarnate immediately after the fall. Hundreds, thousands of years happen between the first sin, original sin, the, 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 the cause of our troubles, which you know we don't really have to argue too much about since it's so real to us. Since the first disorder, complete disorder introduced in God's creation and the coming of Christ who reorders and recreates everything. What happens in between? As far as God is concerned, this is what we have in the Old Testament. The whole of the Old Testament revelation of God seeking humanity, gradually making himself sort of known to humanity through Abraham, through Isaac, Moses, the prophets, the whole of the history of Israel, the kingdoms, the exile, the return, 
the whole, everything that happens in the history of salvation in the Old Testament is God making himself known, seeking humanity, inviting humanity to, to consider him. And all of that, all of that movement of God towards humanity in the Old Testament is summarized in the words of John. John stands as the, if you want, the symbol of the, the whole of the Old Testament just by saying these words, behold the Lamb of God. Those words will have no meaning outside of the context of the Old Testament. And it's within the context of the Old Testament that they become not only understandable, but understandable as the fulfillment of everything that God has been saying and doing for Israel until that day. Behold the Lamb of God. This is the moment. God himself will provide the Lamb Behold the Lamb of God. Here it is, the fulfillment. That's it. There is the moment everybody's been waiting for, from the moment that God started revealing himself to Abraham. So John is the symbol of that. And that's why we consider John the Baptist to be at the turning point between Old and New Testament. Because he summarizes in his person, even in his appearance, but in everything that he is, everything that is communicated in the Old Testament, pointing to the fulfillment of it all in Jesus. As Jesus passed by, John said, Behold the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. And it's unmistakably a lamb for offering, a lamb destined for a holocaust, to take away the sins, to reconcile us, finally, a sacrifice that will work, a sacrifice that will completely cleanse us from sin and in fact reconcile us with God to a degree unimaginable before. And this is the Paschal mystery. The Paschal mystery is the mystery of the Lamb sacrificed and risen, the Lamb of God, the Lamb who has conquered. And this involves, once we have the Lamb of God, Jesus, this involves our freedom. This is not salvation given to us passively and we don't have anything to do with it, and we just receive it whether we know it or not. This is the Lamb of God presented to us, again, by the witness of John, and in fact by the witness of the Church now, the Lamb of God presented to us for us to seek Him. And this is exactly what happens in the text. Behold the Lamb of God, hearing this, the two disciples followed Jesus. It involves human freedom. What are you going to do about it? Here is the Lamb of God. Here is God's answer to the cry of humanity for salvation, for life, for peace, for happiness, for eternal blessedness, for communion with God. Hearing this, the two disciples followed Jesus. And then we have this dialogue of Jesus turned around, saw them following and said, what do you want? Which is really, what do you seek? And so now we had God coming after us all that time so that we may come after him. And he asks us, what do you seek? In asking the disciples, he asks humanity, what do you seek? Where do you live? And this is a stunning answer. Where do you live? We want to be where you are. Show us where you are. We want to be with you. This is the, f the fulfillment of all desire, really, is to be 
to have the happiness and joy, the goodness that God himself is, and yet that we don't quite know that he is because, you know, we tend to know what's physical and around us, but we all want something a lot more than that. And that's precisely what the Lamb of God offers us. Where do you live? Now, where do you live? We know that Jesus, we don't actually know where he lives at this point in the Gospel of St. John. It's not like he's going to bring them to Nazareth to, to Mary's house. This is the public ministry of Jesus. Where is Jesus going to bring them? Where do you live? Come and see. Where is he going to take them? In Luke 9, 58, Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. But John, in his prologue, has told us already where Jesus lives. No one has ever seen God. The only Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has made him he's known. Where Jesus lives, it's not so much where he, he functionally lives, the house, the locality, but he lives in the Father. He dwells in the bosom of the Father. And that's where he takes us. He takes us literally to his home, which is in the Father, because he's the only begotten Son of God. That's the whole plan. He comes not just to make things right for us and, and leave us where we are. He comes to, yes, make things right as the Lamb who is sacrificed for sin, but to take us to where he is with him in the Father's heart. And, and so we abide in the Father because we abide in him. In John 6, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. This is where we dwell. This is where we belong in him. It's not a locality. It's a relationship. But of course, it will be, you know, it's, it's pointing to eternal life with him in heaven. It's not an abstract pie in the sky. It's a very real dwelling uh, which is prepared for us. And so we have this same word, where do you live, where do you abide, where do you dwell? In John's Gospel, in John 8, if you continue in my word, if you dwell in my word, abide in me and I in you, dwell in me, remain in me. So this is the same understanding of dwelling and remaining and living and abiding. He wants us to be in him so that we can come and see where he is, which is in the Father. So they went and saw where he lived and stayed with him the rest of the day, remained with him, dwelled with him. That's the plan, not just for those two, but for the whole of humanity and so for us. The, so we see the whole movement of God revealing himself in the Old Testament with John, the Lamb, coming, finally fulfilling the Old Testament as the Lamb of God, calling humanity to follow him, what do you seek? And leading humanity to himself, his own home, as it were, his own self, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Blessed Trinity, where we belong now as children through the Lamb of God, through being conformed and baptized in Christ and, and becoming his disciples. So that's, if you want, the summary of Christ's vocation is to make God's plan happen, if you want, in that way of God seeking humanity uh, so that humanity may be seeking God. We see also in that text a summary of our human vocation, of our as baptized member of Christ. It's a summary not just to, of generic humanity, but a summary of the vocation of humanity 
to receive and accept and respond to God's invitation. So really, it's a baptismal vocation. First of all, that baptismal vocation, which is really universal, is for anyone, but it involves our human freedom and it involves the gift of God to an extent that we don't have naturally, if you want. That's why we need to be baptized so that we can receive that life of God. But it is primarily the initiative of God. It happens, all of this happens because Jesus passed. If he hadn't come, none of this would be happening. We wouldn't have a choice. We wouldn't have to follow him if he hadn't been there. And by not following him, we, we would have not have no option to enter the heart of the Father if the Son hadn't come to for us to follow him there. So it's his initiative. He passed, he came. He made himself known through the prophet, behold the Lamb of God. Now, it's his initiative as it was here in the text. It's his initiative in the history of salvation. But it's also his initiative in each one of our lives. If any one of us can say, I believe in Jesus, it's because it's God's initiative of grace. God who has passed in our life in one way or another, sometimes so discreetly we don't even notice. He passes in our life simply because perhaps our parents were Catholics and we had received this grace uh, of baptism from them. And then we, you know, at some point we became followers of Jesus. But God has passed into our life and somehow or other we have responded and again, it might happen in, in very different ways, at various different age and stages, uh, either progressively so that we didn't even notice, or dramatically when we had a massive conversion. But at some point or other, we responded. And that means that someone at some point or other has pointed out Jesus to us. And again, it might have happened in a million different ways, but all of us would have had somewhere, somehow, a John the Baptist in our life saying, this is the Lamb of God. And somewhere, somehow, all of us, if we're here and we believe in Jesus, would have followed him and are called still to follow. Because the, the point of the thing, of the, of the story, is that the disciples followed Jesus not as a stage to somewhere else. They want to go where he lives which means, where do you live? He, Jesus is the final stop. Jesus is the finality. That's all we want, is to be with you. That's enough. And, and so there's no end to following Jesus, as it were, but following Jesus and being with Jesus is the end in itself. We don't follow Jesus for something greater, because by following Jesus, we enter the Father's heart and we are filled with the Holy Spirit inevitably because God is one and three. So that's the same reality. Now, in following Jesus, we be become disciples. And as we become disciples of Jesus and realize the beauty and the goodness that it is of living with him and dwelling with him, whichever way this happens in our life, discipleship will have different characteristics which will remain the same, the main one being that Jesus will be our Lord, our master. We will, as disciples, we'll be 
sitting at his feet listening to him, spending time with him, conforming our life to his life, taking on his teaching, living according to his word. That's what a disciple is, uh, whether in a religious or secular definition. And by being a disciple, we will start to become apostle because we, we will start telling others about him. And an apostle is one who is sent to others. And Jesus being the supreme apostle sent by the Father to us to reveal the Father to us. And as apostle, a disciple then begins to be sent by Jesus to tell others about the Lord. And this is exactly what we have in the gospel with Andrew, who immediately early next morning, so he doesn't wait, Andrew met his brother and said to him, we have found the Messiah. Now, John didn't tell him it was the Messiah, but Andrew figured it out from being with Jesus. And he took Simon to Jesus. He doesn't, Simon doesn't seem to have much of a say. So this is a very forceful apostle here. Uh, sometimes people will not really receive our words as heartily as Simon seems to be receiving the words of Andrew, but they have to be spoken. Because as just as we had a John the Baptist in our life, so we can become an Andrew to someone else. And if we're not Andrews to other people, they may not have another one coming along. Of course, we trust God's providence who constantly provides for us and constantly try to passes in our life one way or another drawing our attention somehow or other while completely respecting our freedom the way that jesus enters our life is never forceful we're never obliged to follow jesus it's never a compulsion but we have a responsibility not only of being a disciple but of being an apostle of being an andrew as well uh, to others so that's the human vocation the baptismal vocation in Christ. But again, the finality is to remain with Jesus. Now, what's interesting is that this vocation is both personal. So we have the name of Andrew, for example, the name of Peter, but it's also communal. We know it's two disciples, two of his followers. It's communal because the reality that is uh, beheld, the Lamb of God, is objective and universal. It's for everyone. No one, as it were, is, everyone is unique, but no one is special. The relationship that Jesus wants to have with each one of us is unique to some extent, yes, but will be within the context of the, of the communion of the church. Jesus is never just for me. He's for all of us. He doesn't share himself out so that he doesn't parcel himself out between all of us. He's whole and entire for me, as I am whole and entire for him. But so he's whole and entire for each one of us. And if I think of Jesus and me purely in terms of blocking out the rest, then I'm going to lose Jesus. Because we're in it together. Jesus wants humanity to be united as he is one with the Father. And so our vocation will be common. And so none of us should think of ourselves as saviors of others. The saviour is the Lord. We, 
try to respond to the Lord to the best we can. But he's the one who has the initiative. He's the one who gives us our vocation. He's the one who sends us as apostles. But he's the one who does the work. And none of us has a particular sort of window into him. We have as much access to him as anyone else because he has given himself whole and entire to the whole of his of humanity through the church. For example, that, this can be understood if you want through the Eucharist where Jesus gives himself completely, the whole of himself. He doesn't parcel himself out to everyone, to all of us. Uniquely, personally, yes, but also uniquely, you know, universally as a whole to everyone. He wants the body of the church to be together. Everyone matters. So this is a common vocation. And so we discover in that text, living, where do you live? Master, where do you live? Come and see. So they went and saw where he lived and stayed with him the rest of the day. The rest of the day never ends, as it were, because we live with him here and now for eternity. This is it. He's the finality of humanity. He offers us a future with him forever. And so we understand the church, the summary of the vocation of Christ in that text, the summary of the baptismal vocation, the, the personal vocation of each one of us, but also the summary of the ecclesial vocation. The church is, as a whole, supposed to be John the Baptist, pointing the Lamb of God to the rest of the, the world. And in fact, you know, at Mass, this is what the church does. This, behold the Lamb of God. We, have, we hear this every Mass, and it is exactly the same reality at Mass that we behold as it was by the, by the Jordan. Behold the Lamb of God, the same Lamb, the same vocation to call and to follow. Because the church is not just there to call uh, humanity to Christ, but to follow Christ, to follow Christ. And where any member of the church fails to follow, that's the primary vocation is to follow him, to be conformed to him, to live with him, to abide with him. Being sent to other will sort, sort of flow from that, to be honest, because the Holy Spirit then will, you know, activate us, as it were, to, to, to love and that love will be manifested in Andrew going to immediately tell his brother Simon out of love for him. So that sort of, we shouldn't worry too much about calling others. What we should really worry primarily about is following Christ. And he, following Christ, we will discover where we can be Andrew, where we can be John the Baptist to others. But this is the, the, the vocation of the church is both to follow and to call. And finally, the reality of the church is revealed by John the Evangelist in the book of Revelation as the city of the living God, the new Jerusalem, the city of the Lamb. And we see that in Revelation 21, 22, 27. Now, the book of Revelation, so written by the Apostle John, is the book in the Bible that mentions most the word Lamb. So it really is something that John thought very hard about and here he describes the city to us and i saw no temple in the city for its temple is the lord god the almighty and the lamb and the city has no need of sun or moon to shine upon it for the glory of god is its light and its lamp is the lamb 
By its light shall the nations walk, and the kings of the earth shall bring their glory into it. And its gates shall never be shut by day, and there shall be no night there. And it's a holy city. They shall bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean shall enter it, nor anyone who practices abomination of falsehood, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. The city of the Lamb, that's the final point. Where do you live? Master, where do you live? This is where he lives. This is where he will live forever and where he wants us with him, where he calls all humanity to join him and to be sanctified by him so that abominations and falsehood are gone because the Lamb is constantly sanctifying his people, has sanctified, has redeemed us. But it requires our personal response of following him and that no one can make for us. So if you want, that's the church, the vocation of the church, that city of God, that city of the Lamb, disclosed in its eternal glory. But it's already a present reality in, in, in the church here on earth, because the Lamb, behold the Lamb of God, we see in the Mass the sacrifice of the Lamb, the Paschal sacrifice, the Lamb that takes away the sins of the world. But we see also in the Mass the glory of the Lamb on the throne, on the altar, and we, we are made into the city of the Lamb already here on earth, beholding the Lamb, being sanctified by the Lamb, Jesus, the Word of God, who has taken on our humanity and offered himself for us to the Father so as to clothe us, and not only to clothe us, but to make us sharer in his divinity forever in the eternal city. He wants to form us into that city of God, something that every human heart is longing for, even though we don't quite know it, as it were, sometimes. But we all long for that happiness described in these words of, of the book of Revelation.